0: Part 3 of Enchantress of Venus by Lee Douglas Brackett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 3 They stared at him even more curiously, remarking on his skin and his black hair, and the unfamiliar modeling of his face. The women nudged each other and whispered giggling, and one of them said aloud, They'll need a barrel hoop to collar that neck. The guards closed in around him. "'Well, if you wish to see the El Hari, you shall,' said the leader. "'But first we must make sure of you.' Spear-points ringed him round. Stark made no resistance while they stripped him of all he had, except for his shorts and sandals. He had expected that, and it amused him, for there was little enough for them to take. "'All right,' said the leader. "'Come on.' The whole village turned out in the rain to escort Stark to the castle door. There was about them the same ominous interest that the people of Sharoon had had, with one difference. They knew what was supposed to happen to him, knew all about it, and were therefore doubly appreciative of the game. The great doorway was square and plain, and yet neither crude nor ungraceful. The castle itself was built of a black stone, each block perfectly cut and fitted, and the door itself was sheathed in the same metal as the gate, darkened but not corroded. The leader of the guard cried out to the warder, Here is one who would speak with the Alhari. The warder laughed, <laughs> And so he shall. Their night is long and dull. He flung open the heavy door and cried the word down the hallway. Stark could hear it echoing hollowly within, and presently from the shadows came servants clad in silks and wearing jeweled collars, and from the guttural sound of their laughter Stark knew that they had no tongues. Stark faltered then. The doorway loomed hollowly before him, and it came to him suddenly that evil lay behind it and that perhaps Zareth was wiser than he when she warned him from the Elhari. Then he thought of Helvi and of other things, and lost his fear in anger. Lightning burned the sky. The last cry of the dying storm shook the ground under his feet. He thrust the grinning warder aside and strode into the castle, bringing a veil of the red fog with him, and did not listen to the closing of the door, which was stealthy and quiet as the footfall of approaching death. Torches burned here and there along the walls, and by their smoky glare he could see that the hallway was like the entrance, square and unadorned, faced with the black rock. It was high and wide, and there was about the architecture a calm reflective dignity that had its own beauty, in some ways more impressive than the sensuous loveliness of the ruined palaces he had seen on Mars. There were no carvings here, no paintings, nor frescoes. It seemed that the builders had felt that the hall itself was enough, in its massive perfection of line and the somber gleam of polished stone. The only decoration was in the window embrasures. These were empty now open to the sky with the red fog wreathing through them, but there were still scraps of jewel-toned panes clinging to the fretwork to show what they had once been. A strange feeling swept over Stark. Because of his wild upbringing he was abnormally sensitive to the sort of impressions that most men receive either dully or not at all walking down the hall preceded by the tongueless creatures in their bright silks and blazing collars he was struck by a subtle difference in the place the castle itself was only an extension of the minds of its builders a dream shaped into reality stark felt that that dark cool curiously timeless dream had not originated in a mind like his own nor like that of any man he had ever seen then the end of the hall was reached, the way barred by low, broad doors of gold fashioned in the same chaste simplicity. A soft scurrying of feet, a shapeless tittering from the servants, a glancing of malicious, mocking eyes. The golden door swung open, and Stark was in the presence of the Alhari. They had the appearance in that first glance of creatures glimpsed in a fever dream, very bright and distant, robed in a misty glow that gave them an illusion of unearthly beauty. The place in which the earthmen now stood was like a cathedral for breath and loftiness. Most of it was in darkness, so that it seemed to reach without limit above and on all sides, as though the walls were only shadowy phantasms of the night itself. The polished black stone under his feet held a grim translucent gleam depthless as water in a black tarn. There was no substance anywhere. Far away in this shadowy vastness burned a cluster of lamps, a galaxy of little stars to shed a silvery light upon the lords of Sharoon. There had been no sound in the place when Stark entered. For the opening of the golden doors had caught the attention of the Alhari and held it in contemplation of the stranger. Stark began to walk toward them in this utter stillness. Quite suddenly, in the impenetrable gloom somewhere to his right, there came a sharp scuffling and a scratching of reptilian claws, a hissing and a sort of low, angry muttering all magnified and distorted by the echoing vault into a huge demoniac whispering that swept all around him stark whirled around crouched and ready his eyes blazing and his body bathed in cold sweat the noise increased rushing toward him from the distant glow of the lamps came a woman's tinkling laughter thin crystal broken against the vault The hissing and snarling rose to hollow crescendo, and Stork saw a blurred shape bounding at him. His hands reached out to receive the rush, but it never came. The strange shape resolved itself into a boy of about ten, who dragged after him on a bit of rope a young dragon, new and toothless from the egg, and protesting with all its strength. Stark straightened up, feeling let down and furious and relieved. The boy scowled at him through a forelock of silver curls. Then he called him a very dirty word and rushed away, kicking and hauling at the little beast until it raged like the father of all dragons, and sounded like it too, in that vast echo chamber. A voice spoke, slow, harsh, sexless, it rang thinly through the vault. Thin, but a steel blade is thin, too. It speaks inexorably, and its word is final. The voice said, Come here into the light. Stark obeyed the voice. As he approached the lamps, the aspect of the Elhari changed and steadied. Their beauty remained, but it was not the same. They had looked like angels. Now that he could see them clearly, Stark thought that they might have been the children of Lucifer himself. There were six of them, counting the boy. Two men, about the same age as Stark, with some complicated gambling game forgotten between them. A woman, beautiful, gowned in white silk, sitting with her hands in her lap, doing nothing. A woman younger, not so beautiful perhaps, but with a look of stormy and bitter vitality. She wore a short tunic of crimson, and a stout leather glove on her left hand, where perched a flying thing of prey with its fierce eyes hooded. The boy stood beside the two men, his head poised arrogantly. From time to time he cuffed the little dragon, and it snapped at him with its impotent jaws. He was proud of himself for doing that. Stark wondered how he would behave with the beast when it had grown its fangs. Opposite him, crouched on a heap of cushions, was a third man. He was deformed, with an ungainly body and long spidery arms, and in his lap a sharp knife lay on a block of wood, half formed into the shape of an obese creature, half woman, half pure evil. Stark saw with a flash of surprise that the face of the deformed young man, of all the faces there, was truly human, truly beautiful. His eyes were old in his boyish face, wise and very sad in their wisdom. He smiled upon the stranger, and his smile was more compassionate than tears. They looked at Stark, all of them, with restless, hungry eyes. They were the pure breed that had left its stamp of alienage on the pale-haired folk of the swamps, the serfs who dwelt in the huts outside. They were of the Cloud People, the folk of the high plateaus, kings of the land on the farther slopes of the mountains of White Cloud. It was strange to see them here, on the dark side of the barrier wall, but here they were. How they had come and why leaving their rich, cool plains for the fetter of these foreign swamps, he could not guess. But there was no mistaking them the proud, fine shaping of their bodies, their alabaster skin, their eyes that were all colors and none, like the dawn sky, their hair that was pure, warm silver. They did not speak. They seemed to be waiting for permission to speak, and Stark wondered which one of them had voiced that steely summons. Then it came again. Come here, come closer. And he looked beyond them, beyond the circle of lamps, into the shadows again, and saw the speaker. She lay on a low bed. Her head propped on silken pillows, her vast, her incredibly gigantic body covered with a silken pall. Only her arms were bare, two shapeless masses of white flesh ending in tiny hands. From time to time she stretched one out and took a morsel of food from the supply laid ready beside her, snuffling and wheezing with the effort and then gulped the tidbit down with a horrible veracity. Her features had long ago dissolved into a shaking formlessness, with the exception of her nose, which rose out of the fat, curved and cruel and thin, like the bony beak of the creature that sat on the girl's wrist and dreamed its hooded dreams of blood. And her eyes. Stark looked into her eyes and shuddered. Then he glanced at the carving half-formed in the cripple's lap, and knew what thought had guided the knife. Half woman, half pure evil, and strong, very strong. Her strength lay naked in her eyes for all to see, and it was an ugly strength. It could tear down mountains, but it could never build. He saw her looking at him, her eyes bored into his, as though they would search out his very guts and study them, and he knew that she expected him to turn away, unable to bear her gaze. He did not. Presently he smiled and said, "'I have outstared a rock-lizard to determine which of us should eat the other. And I've outstared the very rock while waiting for him.' She knew that he spoke the truth. Stark expected her to be angry, but she was not. A vague mountainous rippling shook her, and emerged at length as a voiceless laughter. "'You see that?' she demanded, addressing the others. "'You whelps of the El Hari. Not one of you dares to face me down. Yet here is a great dark creature from the God's knows where, who can stand and shame you.' She glanced over at Stark. What demon's blood brought you forth that you have learned neither prudence nor fear? Stark answered soberly. I learned them both before I could walk. But I learned another thing also, a thing called anger. And are you angry? Ask Malthor if I am, and why he saw the two men start a little and a slow smile crossed the girl's face malthor said the hulk upon the bed and ate a mouthful of roast meat dripping with fat that is interesting but rage against malthor did not bring you here i'm curious stranger speak i will stark glanced around the place was a tomb a trap The very air smelled of danger. The younger folk watched him in silence. Not one of them had spoken since he came in, except the boy, who had cursed him, and that was unnatural in itself. The girl leaned forward, idly stroking the creature on her wrist so that it stirred, and ran its knife-like talons in and out of their bony sheaths with sensuous pleasure. Her gaze on Stark was bold and cool oddly challenging of them all she alone saw him as a man to the others he was a problem a diversion something less than human stark said a man came to sharoon at the time of the last rains his name was helvi and he was son of a little king by Yorbel. he came seeking his brother who had broken taboo and fled for his life Helvey came to tell him that the band was lifted and he might return. Neither one came back. The small evil eyes were amused, blinking in their tallowy creases. And so? And so I have come after Helvy, who is my friend. Again there was the heaving of that bulk of flesh, the explosion of laughter that hissed and wheezed, in snake-like echoes through the vault. <laughs> "'Friendship must run deep with you, stranger. Ah, well, the el are kind of heart. You shall find your friend.' And as though that were the signal to end their deferential silence, the younger folk burst into laughter also, until the vast hall rang with it giving back a sound like demons laughing on the edge of hell. The cripple only did not laugh, but bent his bright head over his carving and sighed. The girl sprang up. "'Not yet, Grandmother. Keep him awhile.' The cold, cruel eyes shifted to her. "'And what will you do with him, Vara? Haul him about on a string like bar with his wretched beast?' Perhaps, though I think it would need a stout chain to hold him. Vara turned and looked at Stark, bold and bright, taking in the breadth and the height of him, the shaping of the great smooth muscles, the iron line of the jaw. She smiled. Her mouth was very lovely, like the red fruit of the swamp-tree that bears death in its pungent sweetness. "'Here is a man,' she said the first man I have seen since my father died. The two men at the gaming table rose, their faces flushed and angry. One of them strode forward and gripped the girl's arm roughly. So I am not a man, he said with surprising gentleness. A sad thing for one who is to be your husband. It's best that we settle that now before we wed. Vara nodded. Stark saw that the man's fingers were cutting savagely into the firm muscle of her arm, but she did not wince. High time to settle it all, Egil. You have borne enough from me. The day is long overdue for my taming. I must learn now to bend my neck and acknowledge my lord. For a moment Stark thought she meant it. The note of mockery in her voice was so subtle. Then the woman in white, who all this time had not moved nor changed expression, voiced again the thin, tinkling laugh he had heard once before. From that, and the dark suffusion of blood in Egil's face, Stark knew that Vara was only casting the man's own phrases back at him. The boy let out one derisive bark and was cuffed into silence. Vara looked straight at Stark. "'Will you fight for me?' she demanded. Quite suddenly it was Stark's turn to laugh. "'No,' he said. Vara shrugged. "'Very well, then. I must fight for myself.' "'Man!' snarled Egel, "'I'll show you who's a man, you scrape-grace little vixen.' He wrenched off his girdle with his free hand, and at the same time bending the girl around so he could get a fair shot at her. The creature of prey, a Terran falcon, clung to her wrist, beating its wings and screaming, its hooded head jerking. With a motion so quick that it was hardly visible, Vara slipped the hood and flew the creature straight for Egil's face. He let go, flinging up his arms to ward off the talons and the tearing beak. The wide winds beat and hammered. Egil yelled. The boy bore, got out of range, and danced up and down, shrieking with delight. Vara stood quietly. The bruises were blackening on her arm, but she did not deign to touch them. Egil blundered against the gaming table and sent the ivory pieces flying. Then he tripped over a cushion and fell flat, and the hungry talons ripped his tunic to ribbons down the back. Vara whistled, a clear, peremptory call. The creature gave a last peck at the back of Egil's head and flopped sullenly back to its perch on her wrist. She held it, turning toward Stark. He knew from the poise of her that she was on the verge of launching her pet at him, but she studied him and then shook her head. No, she said, and slipped the hood back on. You would kill it. Egel had scrambled up and gone off into the darkness, sucking a cut on his arm. His face was black with rage. The other man looked at Vara. If you were pledged to me, he said, I'd have that temper out of you. Come and try it, answered Vara. The man shrugged and sat down. It's not my place. I keep the peace in my own house.' He glanced at the woman in white, and Stark saw that her face, hitherto blank of any expression, had taken on a look of abject fear. "'You do,' said Vara, and if I were Arel I would stab you while you slept. But you're safe.' She had no spirit to begin with. Arel shivered and looked steadfastly at her hands. The man began to gather up the scattered pieces. He said casually, Egil will wring your neck some day, Vara, and I shan't weep to see it. All this time the old woman had eaten and watched, watched and eaten, her eyes glittering with interest. A pretty brood are they not, she demanded of Stork, full of spirit, quarreling like young hawks in the nest. That's why I keep them around me, so they are such sport to watch. All except Treon there. She indicated the crippled youth. He does nothing. Dull and soft mouthed. Worse than Arel. What a grandson to be cursed with. But his sister has fire enough for two. She munched a sweet, grunting with pride. Treon raised his head and spoke, and his voice was like music echoing with an eerie liveliness in that dark place. Dull I may be, grandmother, and weak in body and without hope, yet I shall be the last of the Elhari. Death sits waiting on the towers, and he shall gather you all before me. I know, for the winds have told me. He turned his suffering eyes upon Stark and smiled, a smile of such woe and resignation that the earthman's heart ached with it. Yet there was a thankfulness in it, too, as though some long waiting was over at last. "'You,' he said softly, "'stranger with the fierce eyes, I saw you come out of the darkness, and where you set foot, there was a bloody print. Your arms were red to the elbows, and your breast was splashed with the redness, and on your brow was the symbol of death. Then I knew, and the wind whispered into my ear, It is so. This man shall pull the castle down, and its stones shall crush Sharon and set the lost ones free. He laughed very quietly. Ha, ha, look at him, all of you, for he will be your doom. There was a moment's silence, and Stark, with all the superstitions of a wild race thick within him, turned cold to the roots of his hair. Then the old woman said disgustedly, "'Have the winds warned you of this, my idiot?' and, with astonishing force and accuracy, she picked up a ripe fruit and flung it at Tryon. Stop your mouth with that, she told him. I am weary to death of your prophecies. Tryon looked at the crimson juice trickling slowly down the breast of his tunic to drip upon the carving in his lap. The half-formed head was covered with it. Treon was shaking with silent mirth. Well, said Vara, coming up to Stark, what do you think of the Elhari, the proud El-Hari who would not stoop to mingle their blood with the cattle of the swamps? My half-witted brother, my worthless cousins, that little monster boar who is the last twig of the tree? Do you wonder I flew my falcon at Egil? She waited for an answer, her head thrown back, the silver curls framing her face like wisps of storm cloud. There was a swagger about her that at once irritated and delighted Stark. A hellcat, he thought, but a mighty fetching one and bold as brass. Bold and honest. Her lips were parted, midway between anger and a smile. He caught her to him suddenly and kissed her, holding her slim, strong body as though she were a doll. He was in no hurry to set her down. When at last he did he grinned and said, "'Was this what you wanted?' "'Yes,' answered Vara, "'that was what I wanted.' She spun about, her jaw set dangerously. "'Grandmother, she got no farther. Stark saw that the old woman was attempting to sit upright, her face purpling with effort, and the most terrible wrath he had ever seen. "'You!' she gasped at the girl. She choked on her fury and her shortness of breath, and then Ejil came, soft-footed, into the light, bearing in his hand a thing made of black metal and oddly shaped with a blunt thick muzzle. "'Lie back, grandmother,' he said. "'I had a mind to use this on Vara.' Even as he spoke, he pressed a stud and stark, in the act of leaping for the sheltering darkness, crashed down and lay like a dead man. There had been no sound, no flash, nothing but a vast hand that smote him suddenly into oblivion. Egil finished, but I see a better target. End of part three.